America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. In today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the country of Australia, an ally since the ANZUS Treaty was ratified in 1951. Our guest is the Honorable Julie Bishop. Ms. Bishop is regarded as one of Australia's finest ministers for foreign affairs, serving from 2013 to 2018, and was the first woman appointed to that role. One of her enduring legacies as foreign minister will be the new Colombo Plan, which has supported thousands of Australian undergraduate students to undertake part of their studies in nations of the Indo-Pacific region. She was also responsible for the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper, which was released to guide Australian external policy over the next decade and beyond, the first such document produced since 2003. Ms. Bishop was a senior member of Australia's National Security Committee, and responsible for the oversight of Australia's secret intelligence service, the counterpart to the CIA. She had a successful political career, holding the deputy leadership of her political party for 10 years while winning six consecutive elections. Ms. Bishop had a distinguished legal career prior to politics and rose to be managing partner of a large national legal firm in Western Australia. She is the chancellor of the Australian National University and serves on a number of commercial advisory and not-for-profit boards. Ms. Bishop joins us from Australia, a country originally inhabited by Aboriginal Australians that have inhabited the mainland and cultivated rich and enduring artistic and spiritual traditions since prehistoric times. Europeans began to land in Australia in the early 17th century. The British first landed in Australia in 1770 and established the penal colony of New South Wales in 1788. The Commonwealth of Australia was established in 1901, 150 years after American independence. The government of Australia, as outlined in its constitution, reflects influences from both the U.S. federal system and the British constitutional monarchy. The United States and Australia have followed similar trajectories through the history of the 20th century. The creation of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, or ANZAC, in World War I was Australia's first foray onto the international stage and left a lasting legacy in Australian and New Zealand culture. Australia also experienced the hardship of the Great Depression, and almost one million Australians fought with the Allies in both the European and Pacific theatres during World War II. Following the war, Australia established a massive immigration program that saw hundreds of thousands of Europeans move to Australia to work in the country's expanding post-war economy and contribute to Australia's multicultural society. Australia fought with the United States in all major wars of the 20th century and is a member of the Five Eyes, a group of the U.S.'s most trusted intelligence-sharing allies. The 2005 Australia-United States Free Trade Agreement, AUSFTA, 
has been responsible for increasing investment between the two countries by 283%. However, Australia's international experience diverged with the United States following the great financial crisis of 2008-2009, when it did not experience a downturn associated with the crisis. Instead, Australia has had a positive GDP growth rate since 1992 and seen robust trade in mining and agriculture leading to government budget surpluses and above-average standings in income and wealth, environmental quality, health status, housing, jobs and earnings, education and skills, subjective well-being, social connections, and personal security. Its 28 years of consecutive economic growth is a world record amongst major economies, and only came to an end in 2020 due to the pandemic. Australia's trade growth is attributable in part to its reliance on China as a consistent trade partner in mining, agriculture, real estate, higher educational exchange, and a provider of foreign direct investment. China accounts for almost a third of Australia's exports, and Chinese students make up 10% of the Australian university population. The commingling of Chinese interests in Australian policies and trade exploded in 2015 when China poured investment and influence into Australia. Signing of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank made Australia a strategic partner of China, which then ushered in the long-sought-after China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. A Chinese company obtained a 99-year lease of Australia's northernmost port in Darwin and the state of Victoria defied the national government and joined the Belt and Road Initiative. Indeed, Beijing's united front have expended considerable resources and efforts targeted at politicians, businesses, community groups, and individuals in an attempt to build support for Chinese Communist Party policies on issues such as the South China Sea and Taiwan. Australia, with its almost 40,000-kilometer coastal border, is a strong supporter of a free and open Pacific, and the government is increasing its support for close coordination with the Quad. The relationship between Australia and the U.S. remains steadfast, with at least 70% of the Australian public supportive of its alliance with the U.S. over the past 12 years. We talked to Ms. Bishop at a time when the trade-offs between national security and private sector growth, trade, and climate change are being brought to the forefront of both Australian and American society. Julie, welcome to Battlegrounds. Let me begin by saying what an honor it was to serve alongside you. I remember fondly, I think it was my first full day in the White House. I had the opportunity to meet with you and you graciously joined me in my empty White House office where I, I found myself quite unexpectedly. And you gave me the benefit of your perspective on the challenges that we we're facing and then how we might work together to overcome those challenges and, and help uh, build a, a better future for both our countries and the free world. And, and it was quite an honor that day. And it's, it's great to see you again. Thank you. General, it's great to be with you as well. And I well remember our first meeting. It was your first day as National Security Advisor. I think it had been announced earlier that morning and you were so kind to meet with me. My um, trip to Washington coincided with your announcement. And I do remember sitting in your office, you barely had your feet under the desk 
And we talked about the great relationship between the United States and Australia, that alliance that has endured for so many decades. And our friendship, of course, goes way back uh, to probably the beginning of the 20th century, but our alliance formally from 1951 has been the bedrock of Australia's uh, security, defence, intelligence um, policy platform ever since that time. And we had a wonderful chat and I'm delighted to join you today. Well, th thank you, Julie. And you know, at that time, I remember you offered a tour de force of, of the critical challenges that, that, that are important to both our countries and really the free world. And so what would you tell us today, Julie, about the view of the challenges we're facing, the opportunities we're facing from the perspective of Australia? Well, no question we are all in the grip of this global pandemic, although I must confess that Australia is in a better position currently than most other countries around the world. We're an island continent, so we went into lockdown very early on and we have um, external borders. Uh, we don't allow people in or people out without the harshest of restrictions, might I say. So Australia's infection rate is very low, virtually nil at this point, but I know that this global pandemic is raging around the world and that will continue to be a challenge for the new administration in the United States for uh, Europe, for countries where it hasn't even hit its first wave, let alone the second wave. And I think the lessons to be learned from the global pandemic will be uh, profound. And that will, perhaps later in our discussion, bring me back to US global leadership. Uh, secondly, the, you know, the great uh, relationship of our times, the US and China, is under extraordinary um, tension at present. It's in open competition, almost confrontation. And countries around the world, including Australia, are trying to determine how we manage that divergence and, and even should there be a decoupling in areas of, such as technology or other economic areas between the US and, and China. I think there are so many other challenges that we face. I mean, the advent of the fourth industrial revolution, our experts tell us that we're only at the beginning of the technological revolution. And as uh, increases in computing power and AI and robotics and, and um, the great disruptions of our time only increase, that's going to impact on all countries. And then, look, let's face it, there are plenty of hotspots around the world we could discuss. And climate change, another issue of our time. So there are plenty of matters for us to turn our attention to as we emerge um, from the uh, COVID pandemic. There will be an end to this pandemic, but I'm afraid it won't be the last global pandemic we face. Well, Julie, I'm anxious to, to hear more about your perspective, uh, from your perspective on all of these issues. And you, know, you mentioned you began by mentioning COVID-19. It has been a heck of a year, right? And, and I know you're a keen observer of the United States as well. And we're going to be emerging from, I think, what you might call a quadruple crisis, right, of the, the pandemic, the recession associated with the pandemic, the, the social divisions that, that have been laid bare by George Floyd's murder and the aftermath. And, and then, of course, you might have noticed we had quite a vitriolic political season here with the, the presidential election. And, and accompanying all this has been a bit of skepticism, I think, among Americans about our commitments abroad and, and arguments among some that, hey, we just need a period of introspection. But Julie, I think if we learn one thing from COVID-19, it is that challenges that develop abroad can only be dealt with really at an exorbitant cost once they reach our shores. Might you offer a few, uh, a few uh, comments about how you see 
the importance of the U.S.-Australian alliance in coping with the challenges you just outlined. And could you explain why the alliance is important to Australians and why, why, from your perspective, it's important to Americans as well? Well, I appreciate that the United States is going through a very difficult time. And you're right, the divisions within your communities, within your society, have been laid bare in recent times. And whether it's through this um, long presidential campaign, I don't know how you do two-year campaigns, but uh, it was clearly divisive and hyper-partisan, if I might observe. Uh, the uh, social unrest, the riots and violent protests uh, were deeply concerning because the United States is a beacon of freedom and democracy to others in the world. However, I have... Um, confidence in America's infinite capacity to reinvent itself and to continue to lead and be a, an example and a model for others. The United States is still the world's largest economy. It is still by far uh, the largest military. It has a network of alliances around the world that it is, uh, it, it gives it a strength that no other nation can meet. And that network of friendships, relationships, alliances, whether it be NATO or um, alliances in the Asia-Pacific, give the United States a, a powerful reach around the world. Um, we have been concerned, if I might say this, we have been concerned that America seems to be walking away from its commitment to the international rules-based order or the cherry picking those parts of the order that will apply to the United States and um, won't apply. Now, by the international rules-based order, I mean that network of uh, conventions and precedents and alliances and institutions underwritten by international law uh, that has evolved since the Second World War. And the United States was the instigator, the defender, um, the guarantor of that framework that um, guided how nations would behave and towards each other. And let's face it, it has prevented a third global conflict. Um, it has enabled um, the rise in economic prosperity of hundreds of millions of people around the world. And uh, we always look to the United States for that leadership. In more recent times, and I, I don't think it's fair to lay it only at the uh, feet of President Trump at Trump and his America first um, policies and make America great again. But there is this uh, perception that the US now has a zero sum view of the world, that America can only be great at the expense of other nations. And that's not the United States that, that we know and respect. So um, we hope that the United States will continue to show global leadership. And this is where I come back to COVID. In the past, when there's been a, a global challenge, let's take um, the terrorism uprisings after September 11, the United States put together coalitions of like-minded countries to combat terrorism around the world. It was the United States who led the counter-terrorism um, movements, if you like, in countries. After the global financial crisis, it was the United States under President Bush that called the G20 together to say, we've got to fix this and, and turned it into a leader level uh, forum. It was a finance minister level forum before that and said, this is how we're going to work to fix the global financial crisis. Now, history will judge whether they succeeded or not. 
And then when COVID hit um, and we started hearing stories out of China about this pandemic that was so vicious and um, fast-spreading, we expected first the WHO to have protocols in place. After all, there'd been decades of planning and preparing for a global pandemic, but the WHO seemed to be missing in action and we can surmise why that was. But then we looked to the United States to put together a coalition of countries to say we can deal with this, these are the protocols for um, pandemics, this is what we should be doing in terms of restrictions, lockdowns, this is how you balance the public health outcomes with the um, economic disruption. But the United States then retreated behind its own borders and state by state started dealing with the pandemic and other countries did as well. And I, I feel that we lost an opportunity to have a, a global response. Here in Australia, we it's trial and error state by state. You know, some states it's worked, other states it hasn't. And uh, leaders are struggling to get that balance right between the public health imperatives and the impact on their domestic and the global economy. So um, I always look to the United States for uh, direction, for leadership, and we'll continue to do that. And I hope that um, that uh, the perception that the American people want to withdraw and isolate is only that, a perception, because the um, commitment to freedom and democracy and the values that makes America the country it is uh, are as relevant today as they ever were. Well, Julie, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about it, I'll tell you. I, I think this is very important for us to keep in mind your perspective on this. I think that as we emerge from these crises, we're going to emerge in a way that we're stronger ourselves, as you as you alluded to at the beginning. I mean, we're, you know, we're divided, right? But we have a say in how we're governed. We can provide a, a, self, a corrective to ourselves, short of revolution. That's what one of the greatest strengths of our, our democracy. And and I, I do believe there's a strong uh, strong faith in our alliances, and and I think it's okay uh, to to emphasize our sovereignty, not wanting to give it up to international organizations, because international cooperation, as you know, it's it's based on Strong sovereign countries who sh who share principles and and values and work together right to achieve outcomes and and in this case uh, we need vast improvements in global health as you pointed out. Sure. You know, you know, Julie. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I think we've had such a difficulty with COVID nineteen was, of course, you know, the slow reaction by the World Health Organization. I think it should highlight to us: hey, there's no prize just for membership in these organizations. We have to compete. To make sure they're not turned against their purpose, and of course, this is the this is what China has endeavored to do. Uh, I think that uh, we see the risk associated with the Chinese Communist Party subversion of of uh, these institutions and a range of a range of aggressive action taken in the midst of the pandemic. Australia suffered a great deal from these these aggressive actions, massive cyber attacks across all your sectors, and then and then these kind of forms of economic coercion aimed at Australia because you had the temerity to suggest, well, maybe we ought to take a look at, at, at how this uh, pandemic uh, originated. So I thought, I think we might want to send Xi Jinping a thank you note because I think he, <laughs> he, he has more than anybody uh, maybe highlighted the importance of alliances and, and, and partnerships among like-minded nations. Could you offer some thoughts on Australia's experience now confronting these various forms of aggression of the Chinese Communist Party. You were a leader in highlighting this in 2017. 
other Australians like John Garneau in his uh, amazing study of, of Chinese influence, and then the law you subsequently passed. Could you maybe explain to Americans how Australia was in many ways at the forefront of recognizing the threat from uh, from the Chinese Communist Party uh, and the increasingly aggressive actions of the party under Xi Jinping? Well, let me go back a little and, and, and pick up um, my theme where I was saying that, you know, nations around the world uh, have been concerned that the burden of global leadership um, is not resting easily on the shoulders of uh, some American people. And so there's an element of, of nations hedging and preparing for a world where no power takes that role. But in terms of China, uh, there are, there's obviously going to be ongoing and potentially um, greater tensions with the US and its allies for many years. Now, let's take an example. The US has drawn a line in the sand on China's um, salami slicing, let me put it that way, approach with regards to its territorial claims, including in the South China Sea, uh, its border with India, the Senkaku, Daiyu Islands, and so on. And um, Australia has likewise been a voice uh, of concern. And uh, the challenge, of course, is always with China that um, developing nations that once looked to the leading democracies as a model for growth are now looking at um, China's status model dominated by state-owned enterprises as an alternative. And um, China is our largest two-way trading partner at present. Uh, we have a massive trade surplus, um, you know, the opposite in the United States where you have a trade deficit with China, but we have a massive trade surplus. And the first time in our history, our um, major trading partner in China and our major defence strategic and investment partner in the United States are in open competition. And so Australia has had to manage those relationships and, and, and it hasn't been easy. Um, it, in my experience, it is possible to have very robust discussions with uh, Chinese officials in private and, and to lay down some, uh, some um, principles. Um, but at the end of the day, the US is the only power uh, with the authority that China ultimately respects and will uh, retreat from, um, you know, warnings about Taiwan, East and South China Sea. Um, if those warnings are given, then that impacts on China's decision-making. And um, we are very aware of that. In the case of Australia, though, we don't have that military authority or that global authority that the United States does. So when Australia acts in a way that meets with Beijing's disapproval, they use economic coercion to get us to toe the line. And in recent years, there have been a number of areas where our worldview has diverged sharply from China's um, in terms of cyber attacks, uh, which we um, can trace back to you know, state-sponsored cyber attacks. Uh, where um, foreign interference has um, impacted upon our national sovereignty and we've introduced legislation to, to deal with what our intelligence and security agencies tell us is foreign interference in our, in our um, institutions and democratic processes. And then in recent times, we have um, vocalised our concerns about human rights abuses in China, particularly the... Um, um, Uyghurs in, in Western China and, and the treatment of them. 
And then more recently, our Prime Minister called for an investigation, an inquiry into how the COVID-19 pandemic began and China's role in uh, divulging or not divulging the origins of it and called for an inquiry. And that incurred China's wrath. Uh, We now see our exporters suffering um, in many of our energy and resource sectors, now in agriculture, even today, there's a story about our timber exports being rejected. So now it's uh, coal, um, wine, uh, barley, uh, it it goes on and on. Uh, Lobsters, we had a case where millions of dollars of fresh lobsters and and China takes about 95% of our you know, crayfish, lobsters, takes about 95% of our trade, uh, it was just left sitting on a wharf. And, uh, you know, this is having a, an economic impact. It does mean that um, the old saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket, comes home to remind us that we need to diversify our um, export approach. We need free trade agreements with other countries around the world. And to be fair, we have been doing that for some time. But still, without doubt, uh, China is our biggest destination for our iron ore, which is our number one um, export item. And so when those sorts of responses occur, it really does put you on edge. And uh, the Australian government, I assume, is trying to work behind the scenes. But the message that we get publicly is that China's just not picking up the phone. So, you know, those counterpart to counterpart connections that obviously works so well in times of difficulty in relationships uh, seem not to be occurring at present. And, uh, you know, you will remember, um, HR, you'll remember visiting China and there's never an occasion where, um, or rarely an occasion where Chinese officials don't remind you that China is a nation on the rise, the United States and its allies are nations on the decline. So... Um, we'll have to work. We'll have to work through this with China, but uh, I think the managing the relationship with China is going to be one of the great challenges, not only of our country but most certainly of the United States as well. And, and Julie, I think this highlights really the first part of our discussion: the importance of alliances. Right? If Americans are asking the question, why is it important? Oh, it's important because if China succeeds in playing us off against each other and and picking off free and open societies, the world will be less free, less prosperous and less safe. And we're so much stronger when we act together. And and I would just say, let's eat more, you know, Australian lobsters and drink more Australian wine. I'll encourage encourage you to do that, most certainly. (laughs) Uh, You know, our region, the Indo-Pacific, China is a a very dominant regional uh, player. And uh, many countries are hedging and preparing for a world where China is even more dominant. But I can assure you, countries in our region, when you talk to them, uh, they don't want to live in a world where uh, China is the only power. Uh, They want to live in a world where the United States um, shows more leadership, not less. They don't want to live in a world where only China calls the shots. And I I think that um, China's assertiveness, particularly during COVID, uh, is making a number of nations uh, think twice. Now, I, 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 to be fair about China, it's facing its own it's facing its own challenges. It most certainly has a, um, a demographic challenge. It's uh, uh, 
nation is getting older, and there's a saying, you know, they, they don't want to get old before they get rich, but their uh, demographic challenge is one of the fastest ageing populations in the world, which comes from, you know, distortions of its one-child policy. And apparently the proportion of new working age adults to those in retirement is working against them. And, um, of course, uh, China is yet to avoid the middle-income um, trap. And as an, author an authoritarian regime, its um, history says that, uh, you know, centrally planned states have yet to overcome that. So um, China can't afford to be reckless, let me, let me put it that way. I think um, even though its model is being put forward to um, emerging countries as one to be embraced, at the end of the day, uh, China can't afford to be, be reckless because it does have its own, its own challenges and, and um, economic challenges as well as, uh, as well as demographics. So, you know, and there, there are enormous mountains of debt, uh, particularly at the provincial and city level, and still large, inefficient state-owned enterprises dominate parts of its economy. So while it's a significant economic and world power, it uh, it's not in a position where it can be reckless in its dealings with the rest of the world. And, and I think when we work together with, with Australia, with Japan and India, this format of the Quad has taken on kind yeah. of a new... A, a new prominence. Uh, I think again, thank you, note to Xi Jinping. Maybe in order there, I think truly that that Australia is in a great position as well to clarify. I think some misunderstandings about the competition with China. <laughs> this is not a U.S.-China problem. I mean, this is a three-world China problem. When you look at the bludgeoning of Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier, the aggressive actions we've talked about in connection with with uh, Australia, the threats to Japan and and now I think increasingly Taiwan is a very dangerous flashpoint, having uh, seen that the party uh, already extend its repressive arm in Hong Kong. I think Taiwan is directly in the in the sights of, of the party. So what what concerns you the most about next steps, and 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 what do, what do you see for the Quad? What is the potential there, and what can, what do you think the next agenda items ought to be? for reinvigorated alliances and partnerships among our free and open societies? Well, first, I don't, I don't see uh, the China-US um, relationship in terms of a Cold War. I mean, uh, China is not the USSR. Uh, the USSR, is, as you will recall, was essentially a parallel universe. It had its own economy. Its citizens didn't travel the world. It was, it was a, a bubble. Um, China, of course, has opened its economy to the world. Uh, it's not not playing by the same on its own terms. On its own terms, right? They're, they're happy. For, they're happy for us to finance their defense buildup and their efforts uh, yeah. to, uh, to gain an unfair advantage in the emerging global economy as well. Indeed, but you know, Chinese uh, Chinese citizens uh, travel in their millions. Uh, well, pre-COVID, uh, we have a significant number of Chinese students studying in our universities. Our largest uh, source of tourists is now, apart from New Zealand, is now is now China. So Chinese citizens are travelling the world, and they do have the opportunity to experience freedom abroad and to learn from democracies and and observe how people live, as opposed to the USSR. Uh, but what what does concern me is uh, the decoupling. Uh, if if China. Uh, sets up its own trading and financial rules, its own internet, its own um, AI, its own zero-sum um, geostrategic view of the world, that will cause uh, countries to have to choose. 
and uh, some who have uh, basically put their lot in with China through um, the Built Road Initiative, through uh, being funded, you know, these debt for equity swaps that have occurred in Africa and the Pacific and elsewhere. Uh, I, I do fear that that will uh, lead to a, a divergence. Um, from Australia's point of view, we obviously want to continue to work closely with the United States, but like-minded countries, and you mentioned the Quad, I was very interested to see that the Quad, India, Japan, Australia and the United States, has been elevated to Foreign Minister, Foreign Secretary level. Uh, when I was Foreign Minister, it it had um, met we got stuck. at... We got senior, stuck for a while, right. Exactly. Senior officials left. Yeah, there, there was a rather unfortunate situation. Back when John Howard was Prime Minister, the Quad was formed, and then when there was a change of government, the new government kind of uh, crab walked away from the Quad, and the announcement was made in the presence of the Chinese ambassador, as I recall. It was, you know, not a good look. Anyway, India, um, I think quite rightly, became very wary of it and somewhat cynical and retreated to its, you know, non-aligned movement status. But now, interestingly, during this uh, COVID period, the four countries have come together and we are the largest democracies in our part of the world. And I think that the Quad is um, a great opportunity for like-minded countries to share ideas, perspectives um, and, and give other countries a model to look to. Um, I was hoping that uh, the United States would continue to be involved in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, I know free trade agreements is politically difficult in the United States and uh, there's a bit of, you know, protectionist thinking going on, bringing jobs back home. And th there is some, there's some truth to that. I don't think um, global economists really did appreciate the impact that uh, Chinese manufacturing would have on the American worker. There's no, even Paul Krugman has, um, has agreed that globalisation has impacted on the United States in ways not expected. But nevertheless, we know that populist policies, uh, not populist in the mean, you know, I don't mean popular policies, all elected officials need to have popular policies, but populist in the sense that, you know, short-term responses that might be popular can have, devastating long-term consequences. And uh, we do need free and open trade. Uh, so, you know, we hope that the United States continues to be the great consuming nation that it is, but also a great example of how uh, we can set very high benchmarks, gold standards for trade um, between nations. And yeah. uh, that's, that's something that we we hope that the United States, not, I know the Trans-Pacific Partnership is, is somewhat political, but nevertheless, um, the United States continue to uphold those principles. I think the World Trade Organization, um, it's not perfect, but it certainly needs some reform and, and the United States would be of great assistance in, you know, for example, uh, agreeing to some appellate judges in the WTO uh, so that we can actually have trade disputes um, uh, arbitrated or, or determined. Uh, I think that the word that, that would resonate with Americans more is, is reciprocity, right? This is a Donald Trump sure. word. Uh, yeah. and, and I think what has put, but, but it, it should have appeal across both parties. I do think the era of multilateral uh, trade agreements is probably dead for now across both parties. I mean, I think it's important to, to recognize that that uh, if Secretary Clinton had been elected, that she also had said that she would not yeah. be. Which really, I wonder, 
Oh, I mentioned these other really key competitions in terms of data standards, right? Internet privacy standards, you know, other, you know, other uh, standards that will be important to how the, 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 the next global economy develops, this data-driven global economy. There are elements of TPP in these areas that could be applied, I think, multilaterally. They could mm. be taken in to a format like the Quad, or some people have said there should be a you know a group of ten countries, for example, that help set these standards. You see an opportunity to maybe just take pieces of the TPP sure. that make sense, uh, especially in in terms of, of in the in the uh, perspective of the competition with the mercantilist statist model that China is exporting. Uh, do you see that there's promise for that kind of an approach? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the TPP, um, that's, you know, going back to 2016, 2015-16, and sure, we all signed up to it, so it's now 11 nations, and the good news about that is significant economies like uh, Japan and Mexico and others were, Singapore, Australia, were part of that agreement. So there are um, aspects of the TPP that could be adopted elsewhere. I mean, the thing about the TPP was we were hoping other countries would come on board with the benchmarks and standards that have been set. In the um, in the data space, I think this is a, a significant concern. I mean, one of the greatest gifts that the United States has provided to the world, and there have been many uh, since the Second World War, but one of the greatest gifts has been um, universal access to the internet, let's face it, and uh, uh, that um, has set a standard. But now that um, the United States and others have, have banned um, Chinese entities from, say, the development of 5G networks, well, China's gone off and developed its own. And where some um, companies, because they're state-owned enterprises and on national security grounds, have been um, banned from US and its allies, well, then uh, China sets up its own. So it's got an alternate AI. Well, it's basically got its own internet now. And, you know, the great China firewall, as they say, and AI developing uh, in its own way. And I think that this is an area right for alliance collaboration where, you know, some of the great uh, companies around the world are not necessarily in the United States in the 5G network, uh, for example, you know, Ericsson and others. So there are many countries that uh, would want to have a global platform of um, collaboration in the in the. Um, uh, technology space. And that's, uh, again, the United States is such a, a, a brilliant innovator in that area. And I think that uh, it can continue to lead and show global leadership. And there will be plenty of countries who'd be prepared to be part of it. I, I think what President Trump has demonstrated is that America shouldn't have to do this alone. And, you know, just switching topics, but like its relationship with NATO and and the contribution that some of the NATO members should have made to the collective defence. And he, he laid that bare. And I think um, while some of the NATO countries might have been offended by his tone or his blunt approach, at the end of the day, they did recognise that he had a point that uh, you cannot just sit back and expect the United States to carry the burden, that we all have to share it. And that, that can be across many uh, different areas of endeavour. Yeah, Julie, just in connection with this competition on fifth generation communications infrastructure, and uh, I think a question that we should just ask countries who are making this choice is, do you really expect the Chinese Communist Party to treat your citizens better than they treat their own people? 
And I think an important message as well to to countries who say, gosh, I don't want to be caught between the United States and China. I have to choose. No, we're not. I don't think we should ask anybody to choose between the United States and China. We should ask them to choose between sovereignty and servitude. That's the real choice, I think. And, well, the, and way, the way Australia puts it is we say we don't have to choose. We just have to act in our national interest. What's in the best interests of Australia? And then obviously, you know, we're a free, open, liberal democracy. We're committed to freedoms, the rule of law, democratic institutions. Uh, that's who we are. We're an open, export-oriented market economy. Uh, we have um, a standard of living and um, economic growth that depends upon our ability to sell our high quality goods and services around the world. But it's got to be according to a set of rules and players have to play by the rules. So we look at it through our national interest and that enables you um, to position yourself uh, where you need to be. And I think in the in the um, IT space, uh, as you say, there are plenty of companies in China who say, well, you know, we're a, we're a private sector company, but that's not the way Chinese law works. Uh, you act at the direction of the, of the central government. And uh, that's a fundamental difference um, that I think people need to appreciate. Julie, I wonder if we might talk about another really important area of international cooperation, an area that, you know, I had just a tremendous experience with your uh, courageous Australian soldiers and uh, in Iraq and especially in Afghanistan o over the years, I am concerned that we are taking our, our our eyes away from this problem of jihadist terrorism at a time when these groups might be becoming even more potent and even more dangerous. And and this is the case, I think, in connection with the problem set in South Asia and in Afghanistan in particular. And and I think our move to disengage from there has prioritized disengagement over, I, I think, uh, some grave dangers. Could you? Could you tell me how you think about the problem of jihadist terrorism broadly and what you think are the most important actions we should take together across uh, our, our alliance uh, and, and, and with, uh, with like-minded countries? Well, to put it in an historic context, in 2016, uh, we celebrated 100 years of mateship, as the Australians put it. That is uh, the first time uh, the Australians and the Americans fought together and it happened to be under the leadership of an Australian general, Sir John Monash, was in 1916, the Battle of Hamel, where US and Australian soldiers uh, fought together to turn the tide of, of World War I. And since that time, uh, Australia has been side by side with the United States in every significant um, battle or conflict that the United States has had to wage, whether it was World War II, whether it was Korea, Vietnam, and now um, Afghanistan, Iraq, and the Middle East. So uh, Australia and the United States um, have an incredible degree of interoperability, as you would appreciate in our defence capability. Our um, soldiers, our uh, defence personnel know and trust and respect each other. There's uh, an incredible degree of um, connection uh, between us. And we share a, um, a worldview on terrorism and the challenges it faces. You're absolutely right, though. Uh, during COVID, as everybody has retreated to behind borders to consider their own domestic challenges, and as great as they are, 
there isn't the focus on what's actually happening in uh, some of these places where jihadism and uh, terrorist groups were proliferating. Uh, I remember in 2014 when um, it was really at its height, I think, when um, Australia and the United States went back into Iraq and we were trying to, at the invitation of the Iraqi government, we were trying to deal with um, ISIS. And there was a moment when there was a fear that ISIS was going to march on Baghdad. And, you know, we, we kind of forget that that's how um, terrifying it had been. And then, of course, it went into Syria and, and what's happened in Syria. Um, I think that, um, again, we can't assume that it's all gone away because the world's diverted its attention to um, pandemics. There are still significant hotspots around the world that will require um, powerful nations to put an end to it, uh, put an end to the kind of um, brutal um, jihadist activity that is still there. I mean, every now and then you'll get a story about uh, terrorists with suicide bombings or attacks on civilians, and it reminds you that this is still an ever-present problem. Um, again, um, Australia is a, a willing partner. Uh, we still in Afghanistan, um, still in Iraq, but we certainly haven't eliminated the uh, jihadists, the terrorist um, scourge that has impacted on so many families in our country and yours. And um, I just hope that our alliance means that we continue to be a force for good in the world. Right. And I think a way to share the burden so we can manage the costs and, and, and of really an insurance policy to make sure that these devastating attacks that both our countries have suffered uh, never yeah. happen again. And, and, uh, and, and also, I, you know, I think it's important to recognize that it is. It is the the, the, the Afghans, for example, uh, or the Iraqis, who are bearing the brunt of this fight, and we're enabling yeah. them, enabling them to do that. There is this drive, though, toward you know, toward retrenchment that cuts really across all sectors, uh, Julie. And I, I wonder if you might if you might share what you think are other you know other global uh, threats that we have to to we have to deal with other threats like jihadist terrorism or like a pandemic, right? That don't don't respect national boundaries uh, and therefore have to be dealt with uh, through through uh, multinational cooperation. I'm thinking of maybe these interconnected problems of energy security and, and environment sure. and climate change and food and water security. Uh, what do you think should be top on, on our agenda for the US and, and Australia to work together to bring other nations alongside us and, and, and to, to make sure that we build a better future for generations to come? You know, just, just on jihadism, uh, before I answer that, I was thinking as you were talking about how uh, one of the, one of the uh, issues that I was dealing with before I resigned as foreign minister was the emergence of ISIS um, pools in our part of the world, in the Philippines in particular. And under President Duterte, he had a, I don't know, he had a particularly... Um, unorthodox view of the United States. Uh, I, you know, he's a rather unorthodox president. But anyway, he wasn't particularly enamoured with the United States until they found uh, pockets of um, jihadists in uh, the southern Philippines and then turned very swiftly to the United States to help with um, intelligence and uh, other forms of defensive capability. 
and uh, and Australia was part of that assistance as well. So, you know, when we talk about some of these challenges in in the uh, our part of the world in the Indo-Pacific, uh, the United States is still uh, very much a a power that our nations turn to, even if you know President Duterte was um, his campaign platform was one might say slightly anti-American. Nevertheless, when uh, when the chips were down, he turned to the US and now is quite actively um, provoking China by um, reinstating the UNCLOS arbitration over contested territorial claims, Philippines against against China. He when he first came in, he said, "Oh, don't worry about that. We can work happily with China." Well, now he's sort of saying, "Hang on, I've got an arbitration in my favour, and I want to rely on this arbitration." Uh, so, territorial claims in our part of the world are still are still um, alive and active. I, I think some of the other global challenges, yes, climate change and um, add the uh, quest towards uh, a renewable energy, uh, cleaner, uh, greener energy sources. Now, this is a huge challenge for Australia. Our economy has built, been built on um, supplies of President cheap. would say beautiful coal is what he would call yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, well, cheap, uh, and that, that's we have a massive amount of coal. We have coal-fired power stations, and so this transition away from what had been a strength in Australia's economic growth is very hard for many people. Of course, we have masses of uranium, and uh, nuclear power may well be seen as a clean green power, but we can't even get to first base on a debate on. Um, nuclear power in our country. We do not have uh, nuclear power stations. We export uranium to other countries who use nuclear power, but, you know, in a rather, um, well, just the way it is in Australia, you can't even have a debate about the idea of nuclear power without it causing uh, a great deal of anxiety. Uh, so some of the other forms of renewable power, I mean, uh, gas, uh, thermo um, and thermal um We've got hydro um, hydropower in Australia. This is an area where I think technology will be the answer. It'll be technological breakthroughs uh, that will and innovative and creative thinking on how to ensure that our environment is as clean and green and safe as it can be. And again, those kind of partnerships, uh, research partnerships, working with um, other like-minded countries. I note that um, should a Biden administration come into being and President um, Biden be inaugurated in uh, January, and I accept that there are legal challenges uh, underway, but uh, a Biden administration would rejoin the Paris Agreement. I think that is important, again, just to show that the United States is prepared to be part of a global solution. The United States is a major uh, emitter of greenhouse gases and um, that it's prepared to work with other countries uh, to achieve better outcomes around the world. You know, Julie, I mean, I, I'm sure the Biden administration will re-enter the Paris Agreement. What I'm concerned about is the Paris Agreement is not the solution. <laughs> it actually makes us feel good about ourselves. Uh, but it's another non-solution. And I think what you're alluding to is that we need solutions that apply in developing economies as well. And sure. the conversion to natural gas is, as you mentioned, that, that's hugely important. It was the biggest reduction in man-made emissions ever in history was when the U.S. converted many of our coal plants to, uh, to natural gas. Uh, sure. And then this combination of that and renewables and nuclear power. It's also, it's always interesting to me how advocates for 
the non-solutions like the Green New Deal here in the United States are also anti-nuclear. Like you, you can't, yeah. you can't really, uh, you, you can't really you, be both if you want hope for the planet here. So you can't, you can't, can't even have a debate about them here. If you say, look, you know, uh, nuclear is zero emissions. Yeah, but they don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about solar or wind. And you say, yeah, but it's not twenty-four-seven base load. Well, that doesn't matter. You know, um, it's look, it's a debate that um, I was minister for science at one point. And I recall getting a, uh, a detailed analysis of uh, the business case for nuclear power in Australia. And at that time, because we had plentiful supplies of cheap coal, uh, the business case couldn't be made without massive government um, subsidy. And I, I, that could change over time, but uh, people's attention is most certainly on gas. Australia is... Uh, I think we've just take, overtaken Qatar as the largest exporter of LNG in the world. Yeah, I think we did. And, 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 the, and the U.S. The U.S. is actually, you know, it's a it's a growing export uh, for the United sure. States as well, and, and and I think an opportunity to diversify some some uh, some energy sources for countries like Japan as well and others but, who. Yeah, you look at a yeah, you look at a country like India, where there is still um, parts of the country that don't have electricity or have very unstable supplies of electricity. And, you know, they're desperate for uh, cheap forms of, of power uh, at the most basic level. And so um, we do need to support those countries with technology. And I think the wonderful thing about technology is it can leapfrog. You don't have to go through <laughs> all the processes. You can leapfrog to the, to the best um, outcome that's available at the time. Right. Well, Julie, you've been so generous with your time. I'd like to ask you just one final open-ended question. There, there will be a new administration here in the United States on January 20th. What advice would you have for President-elect Biden and his team about about, uh, about the future of our alliance and, and what should he put on the top of his list for the United States and Australia to work together on? Well, on the assumption that it's a, a Biden administration, um, and I'm only saying that because I, I believe there's been no concession um, from President Trump at this point, but on the assumption that it's a Biden administration, Australia is uh, going to welcome it, uh, as we always do, because the alliance between Australia and the United States is deep, it's longstanding, it is enduring. And we've always said that whomever is in the White House and whomever's in the lodge in Canberra, that connection between our people will endure. Uh, we know Joe Biden, he's um, been to Australia, um, he, obviously he's been in public life for a very long time, we're assuming that perhaps some of the senior figures from the Obama administration may feature in a new Biden administration. So there are people that our people will have worked with and will be familiar with. Uh, but I'm sure our Prime Minister, in a conversation he had recently with President-elect Biden, has given the assurance that the alliance is still the bedrock of Australia's strategic outlook and that we'll continue to provide uh, the support, the friendship, and the um, connections with the United States that have enabled Australia to be the country that we are today and that it is possible for the United States to continue to be a principled and reliable global leader as long as its friends and allies maintain their support. And in Australia, you have an enduring friendship. Well, Julie, please share with all of our Australian friends. I'm com we're confident here. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a rough year, but I think it shows the vibrancy of our our democracy. What we've just gone through, and 
And I, I can't thank you enough, uh, Julie Bishop, for being with us on behalf of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for, for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a better future, a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. You know, I, I, I benefited from your wisdom on my first day on the job as National Security Advisor, and, and I've done so again, and so have, have our viewers. Uh, thanks to, to you joining us tonight. It's wonderful, wonderful to keep in touch with you, HR, and uh, stay safe and all the very best as we look forward to that long and continuing and enduring relationship between the United States and Australia. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.